0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, let me invite you now to open them to the Book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. And for those of you who are able to download the order of service and have access to that, uh, let me explain that we have moved a couple of things around so that you won't be going, well, why didn't they do that? But uh, just to bring you up to speed. Uh, The closing song will be, My hope is built on nothing less, uh, to be truthful with you because Josh and I don't know how to sing the last song. So we're switching that out. Sermons on the book of Acts, and it will be a lengthy series. There's only one book in the Bible that has more uh, verses, and that is the Gospel of Luke, who is also... Uh, the writer of the book of Acts. And so it will be a lengthy series, but a profitable one. I'm excited about it. And one last thing before I read the text. You know, I said about a month ago in a sermon that if I was a pastor of a megachurch, I would empty it in three weeks. Well, I've been a pastor here for almost 16 years, and it's pretty empty today. <laughs> thought I would inject a little humor to lighten things up. That said, hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in Acts chapter 1, and we will begin our series on Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have given us your precious word, that you have exalted your word above your name, and that we take seriously your word because it is how and the means by which you speak to us. Lord, we know there are many distractions today for all of us. There are uh, Thousands of things clamoring for our attention, but we ask that your Holy Spirit now enable us to focus our attention upon the preaching of the word and we pray that as your word goes forth from your mouth, it will prosper where you send it and accomplish your purposes just as the rain falls down from the heaven and waters the earth so that the earth may bring forth and produce uh, plants and fruit. So now may your word produce fruit in us that will redound to the glory of your name. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the um, reasons to study the book of Acts is because it is a very unique book, as it is situated in our Bibles between uh, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John, and the Epistles. And so the book of Acts holds a very unique position in the scripture. And it is basically and fundamentally our source book for the spread of early Christianity. And without it, we would know very little about the apostolic church except that which we could glean from the epistles, that is Paul's and Peter's writings in the New Testament. It is the chronicle, as it were, of the spreading flame of the Holy Spirit. But it is also a book with a very splendid theme, tracing the work of the Holy Spirit through the birth, infancy, and adolescence of the church. Its title could well be The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Actually, the title Acts of the Apostles was only added around the second century, so that is not inspired. Uh, but the title could be The Acts of the Holy Spirit or The Acts Of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit working through the church. Acts forms a perfect counterpart and even contrast to the four Gospels. In the Gospels the Son of Man offered his life and in Acts the Son of God offers his power. In the Gospels we see the original seeds of Christianity, in the Acts of the Apostles we see the continual growth of the church. And so the gospel tells us of Christ crucified and risen, Acts speaks of Christ ascended and exalted. And we will, of course, in the coming days talk about the significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ, which is often overlooked uh, in, in our preaching. Uh, so the gospels model the Christian life as lived by the perfect man. Acts models it as it is lived by imperfect people. Acts is a book, according to Yaroslav Pelikan, is a book of frenetic action amidst a constantly shifting scene, conspiracy and intrigue and ambush, hostile confrontations, fierce conflicts, sometimes to the death, rioting, lynch mobs, and personal violence journeyings often, and incessant travel on an Odysseus-like scale all over the Mediterranean world, complete with shipwreck and venomous serpents, chains and imprisonment, followed at least by two instances of a successful jailbreak, though only with the aid of celestial mechanics. Famine and earthquake, crime and punishment, as well as a great deal of punishment, sometimes even capital punishment, And so the book of Acts is an amazingly gripping book. It would make a great mini-series. Perhaps there's someone listening to my voice who has gifts and abilities in that may consider doing a binge-worthy mini-series on the book of Acts because it has everything in it that one would ever want to see. But for our purposes today, what my goal in preaching today today is is to give you the proper perspective on how to read the book of acts and so it falls into the realm of what is called hermeneutics hermeneutics that's not the name of a person that is a anglicized greek word hermeneutikos means to interpret how should we interpret the book of Acts? And so we're going to be talking about what should be foremost in our minds as we read and study the book of Acts. Because nobody approaches Scripture tabla rasa, that is, with a clean slate. We bring to Scripture everything we are. We bring to Scripture all our presuppositions and ideas. We bring to Scripture even our sanctification in terms of understanding it. But today I want to be careful to lead you into a way of understanding the book of Acts that I think best fits its place in Holy Scripture. And is consistent with hermeneutical principles and rules. Uh, the Bible is not to be read at first as what it means to me. The Bible is to be read first what it means in its original context to its original audience by its original author. Now, if you're looking for uh, the kind of information that most um, seminary classes give and books give on introduction to Acts, I'm not gonna take the time to do all of that, like, who is the author? I'm firmly convinced that Luke is the author. When it was written, I believe around 64 AD, uh, who was the original audience? Uh, well, original audience was those who at Pentecost, received the Spirit and were dispersed and scattered. Um, what is the external and internal evidence? You all have access to the Internet. You can go study that for yourself. For some people, that's about as exciting as um, uh, watching a hubcap rust, or it's kind of dull but there's information for you out there. What I want to do is get into more of the mechanics of accepting the book as given in our New Testaments and how we should interpret it, ways in which we should read it. And so there are two uh, crucial things when we consider the book of Acts, two crucial questions. Uh, The Acts of uh, the Apostles is Luke's second volume. It is God's call to remember and reflect on his design for the church and reconsider how our church fits or fails to fit this blueprint. As we return to the thrilling days of yesteryear, we see the New Testament epistles instructions uh, for living fleshed out in real history. The history in Acts, after all, is real. It's full of people who don't get along who don't get it, who don't catch on, and who don't always rise eagerly to the challenges of discipleship. On the other hand, the history is also real uh, in demonstrating the powerful impact of Jesus risen, enthroned, as he was ascended at work among these flawed people by his spirit's quiet but invincible strength. So it's obvious we need light from the church's early days to shine on our church today. And to learn from Acts, what God wants us to learn, however, is not always obvious and it's not always simple or easy. God's Spirit speaks in Acts not in the form of explicit instructions or answered, tailored to 20th century questions, but in the form of historical narrative. That is the genre which we are dealing with. Very much like a Greek or a Roman historian would write, except that it is theological history. It carries with it the marks of sound theology. While it's not a systematic theology, there is theology in the book of Acts. And so, Whenever in God's word we find accounts of events that transpired in the past, we face two very crucial questions, two crucial questions. Number one, what is God's verdict on those events? What is God's verdict on those events? And number two, what does God intend us to learn here and now from what happened there and then? So what is God's moral verdict on the events narrated? It is clear that God does not approve of every action and event that he caused to be recorded in his word. You know that already. Biblical narratives teem with accounts of sordid, sensual, foolish, and violent acts of human beings, all of which God severely condemns. As the biblical narrators signal the reader in various ways, Old Testament history is intimately bound up with the Torah, which is the law for the covenant people of Israel. As the structure of the Hebrew scripture shows, the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of his covenant people are set down in prophetic history as a solemn testimony and warning. Uh, to coming generations. So it is in Acts, actions are recorded for which the Lord of the church clearly disapproves. For example, we have little difficulty seeing that God does not want the church today to duplicate every single thing we see in the pages of Acts. In other words, we have to ask when reading the book of Acts for ourselves, is this passage descriptive that is describing what happened or is it prescriptive telling us how to live in the light of what happened and so we have to make those choices as we carefully engage the book of acts and we have to ask the question what is normative for the whole church in all ages what about acts applies to the whole church for the whole ages or all the ages And this is a little bit more of a difficult issue. When we read about an event or a practice in biblical history of which God does not approve, should we assume that he wants the feature reproduced by us today? For example, we know Abraham was uh, commended by God for his willingness to offer his son, his only, Isaac, as a sacrifice. Should we imitate that action by offering uh, our children in sacrifice or should we imitate his attitude of unflinching unwavering faith and absolute loyalty to the lord uh, likewise when we read in acts that the early church no one claimed that he had any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had what lesson should we learn for our life together today should we take this commendation of the early church's readiness to share as God's hint that he desires radical economic common communalism in today's church? Or does the cultural transcending principle or lesson of this text demand a deeper response than simple imitation, namely a heartfelt and radical commitment to generosity and costly fellowship, whatever it may cost us, to express our unity in Jesus so those are the two questions we face as we read the book of Acts now here are two extreme answers to those questions our dilemma has been called the historical or a problem of the historical precedent how in the historical por- portrait of the early church in Acts or uh, how is the historical portrait of the early church in Acts a normative precedent for the church today Two answers can be given. Number one, everything in Acts. Everything in Acts the Lord approves should be reproduced in the church today. And so you may go to a Pentecostal church or you may go to charismatic portions of the church. And as they read the book of Acts, they see an event like Pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit as repeatable occurrences today over and over and over again, rather than seeing them as maybe one major redemptive historical event with ongoing uh, ideas. And rather than seeing baptism with the holy spirit as an event after one is saved seeing it as the epistles give it to us in first corinthians uh i believe it's second i forget the corinthian passage where it talks about we have all been baptized into one body by the lord acts would be seen in today's church if only we take the Bible seriously. Some people conclude that the baptism of the Spirit comes to believers long after we have come uh, to trust in Jesus. Other believe church leaders must be chosen by lot. Or those who are in the Spirit can handle snakes safely. I don't know if you've ever been to a snake handling service. I think my wife and I both have members in our family that have been a part of those services and uh, we won't call their names out but we will admit that there are people who are very confident that that part of Acts is still in line or uh, still alive for us today uh, I know no one who applies these answers consistently if we did we would conclude that all of the following should be found in every church Apostles who had walked Galilean trails with Jesus, bearing eyewitness testimony to his resurrection. The Spirit coming in an earthquake and roar of wind. Angels leading preachers out of prison. Church discipline by instantaneous, divinely administered capital punishment. I've often said if God administered capital punishment in the church today, as he did with Ananias and Sapphira, we'd have to build a morgue in the church. But the real problem with extreme answers is not our pragmatic inconsistency, the real difficulty is that the everything answer is in itself inconsistent with what the rest of the New Testament theology says. There is something special about the apostles who were chosen by Jesus to give evidence that he had been raised. Together with the prophets, the apostles formed the foundation Of the church Ephesians 2 20 therefore their testimony was confirmed by God through signs and wonders one of the things that if you stand back from the Bible and look at the big picture there are always miracles and signs and wonders surrounding and occurring during major historic redemptive historical events think of the Exodus think of the ten plagues Think of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and walking across the Red Sea on dry ground. Uh, Think of Elijah and Elisha and the miracles they did as they ushered in the age of prophecy. Think of Pentecost and its experience of the signs and wonders and miracles that were done. All of these were given to attest to the validity and authenticity of those people as spokesmen for God. And so we should expect uh, then to find some of the marvelous events associated with the apostles to be unique. They are visible signs like the miracles of Jesus' ministry unveil a salvation that goes deeper and farther than the eye can see. On the other hand, the uniqueness of the apostolic period should not be stressed to the point that Acts is denied any role whatsoever informing our life today jesus's disciples as in the error at the opposite extreme another thing that is often put forward is well if everything is not valid then maybe nothing is valid Uh, nothing in acts is normative to us today again It is doubtful that anybody holds this kind of extreme view consistently but when the vitality of the early church's life challenges our own status quo we may be tempted to argue that although acts accurately describes the church's infancy this description is not supposed to guide our lives today especially where it makes us uncomfortable especially when it asks us to do something we don't want to do and so it's easy to relegate acts to the historical shelf in your mental library having nothing impinging upon our day um, you know it's uh it's funny uh how people approach this often uh for example uh would uh, some would attribute the churches pooling of resources exclusively to the unusual circumstances of the day just following Pentecost when pilgrims who had believed Peter's sermon stayed on after the feast for instruction. Thus no challenge here to America's infatuation with their private property. Others have critiqued Paul's apologetic strategy at Athens as misguided where Paul preaches to, uh, by using an intellectual argument, and uh, even though Luke and God's spirit include Paul's speech on Marl's Hill as a positive example of gospel proclamation. So what I'm trying to do here is to get you to uh, fall into neither the ditch of everything that happened in Acts is supposed to be happening today, or nothing that happened in Acts is supposed to be Happening today, especially if it makes me feel uncomfortable so Luke takes his stand in the tradition of biblical narrative that is Prophetically interpreted history. He writes history that must make a difference in our faith and life Just as his mentor Paul described the purpose of Old Testament history as ethical instruction and teaching certainly the foundational apostolic period Uh, may have unique features about it just because it's foundational but the foundation also determines the contours of the building of the church upon it now let's get into guidelines for discovering and applying the message of acts and since you have nowhere to go and you're stuck at home this could go on a long time but i'll try to amp it up a little bit i'm looking at the clock if neither all or nor nothing answer is a reliable gu- guide to how Acts applies to the church today, how can we understand and apply the Spirit's message correctly? I'm going to give you five bullets here, five points on how we understand the Spirit's message cor- correctly. Number one, read Acts in the light of Luke's purpose. Read Acts in the light of of Luke's purpose. Luke is writing about the climax of God's redemptive acts in history as in the Old Testament history and the Gospels what God has done occupies center stage in acts. It is all about what God has done and God's saving acts always have implication for our response of course but in Scripture the starting point of instruction on right behavior is not first a list of duties you and I are supposed to do but rather a declaration about God's saving achievement that brought us into a relationship of favor with him it is so easy to fall into the trap of saying to yourself I must live this way so that in order on judgment day, I may receive the verdict that I hope I will get. And so my lifestyle will determine ultimately my verdict. That's backwards. According to our understanding of the Bible, rather, you get the verdict first. By trusting in Christ, you are declared forever to be righteous, ever to be under his favor, ever to be an heir of his kingdom, an adopted child one in whom the Spirit has worked, then lifestyle comes. In other words, it's easy to get those reversed, and the cart attempts to pull the horse rather than the horse pulling the cart. But that is an important thing to understand when reading Acts. Although Acts does contain information, On the early church's life and outreach, the book may frustrate us if we try to turn the book of Acts into a manual of church government or mission policies. Its purpose is much more profoundly practical and cross-cultural than so many of our questions about procedures and strategies. Here, God's Spirit unveils the identity of the church between Jesus' two comings Um, The divine power at work in this church and the results of the powerful presence in the environment in which we pursue our mission until the same Jesus who has taken you from heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so you understand Luke's purposes. He's giving us a snapshot, as it were, of the church between uh, the already and the not yet. The moment Jesus ascended to heaven, the last days started. And the entire period between the uh, uh, ascension and the parousia, that is the coming again of Christ, is this period of the church uh, in God's redemptive um, arrangement. And so we understand now, we see the church, not perfect, we see the church in its already foretaste, beginning budding as it were position and we see it growing but it will never be what god intended it to be until christ returns and transforms everything and so you got to locate the church where it is and not try to paint it uh, and backlight it as something perfect it is certainly not perfect in the book of acts We also need to read Acts, and I said this a little bit earlier, in the light of the New Testament epistles. This is number two of five. Read Acts in the light of the New Testament epistles. Luke is a historian, and he is a theologian, and he records the things that have been fulfilled among us, and he also makes sense of the events indicating their significance as an interpreter guided by the Spirit of Christ. Nevertheless, the fact that he communicates this significance through a genre of prophetic historical narrative, rather than a theological essay or treatise, has both advantages and limitations. One advantage is that Luke demonstrates the interface between God's salvation and the details of Hellenistic history. One of the unique things we see about the book of Acts is that two things lie on the surface of the book of Acts. Uh, number one, Christianity sprang out of Judaism. In that sense, or in the sense that all the first Christians originally were Jewish, and whatever particular sect of Judaism they may have belonged to, certainly shaped. But the second thing is that Christianity was not launched on the world as a fully worked out system of doctrine and practice, accompanied by a directive that from 2 a.m. next Sunday, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere were to cease practicing Judaism and began practicing Christianity. No, Christianity had to grow and develop, and that's what Acts is about. As the seed contains within itself the blueprint for the fully grown plant, the plant develops its inherent characteristics under the influence of sun, wind, and rain. And so Christianity grew out of Judaism as it reacted under the instruction and direction of the Holy Spirit to the problems and challenges it met with on its road to worldwide witness in the name of Christ. This is what we might have expected anyway from the upper room discourse where Jesus addresses the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost, uh, which was instantaneous, but provided guidance and leadership and even engineered persecution to move the church where God wanted it to go. So we always, with that said, try to read Acts in the light of the New Testament epistles. Christian faith is from uh, what Luke is showing is how different Christian faith is from religions rooted in mysticism, mythology, or moralism, or speculation. The Gospel of Christ is not abstract theory or poetic symbol. It is the account attested by witnesses of the personal God's intervention into space-time history to rescue fallen human beings. Uh, One limitation, on the other hand, is that in the genre, which Luke writes in as prophetic historical narrative, itself permits theological explanation only indirectly uh, through the placement of material, the recounting of sermons and verbal allusions to Old Testament texts and themes. To say true to his historical aim, Luke the narrator cannot jump into the story with extensive commentary or theological essays to clear up all possible misunderstandings. That's why it would lead me to say this to you. Be wary, be very wary of anyone who builds a system of theology out of the book of Acts. Uh, Here's how I would put it to you. When I lived in Louisiana, uh, they started a new high school, which my children went to. Uh, They were going to uh, Mandeville High School, my oldest daughter. And they opened a new school, which we were zoned from, not too far from our home, called Fountain Blue. You got to remember this is Louisiana, that's why you get names like it. Fountain Blue High School. And so Mary goes to Fountain Blue High School and it's called a high school, but it only has one grade. It's the 10th grade, why? It's a new high school. So when you look at Fountain Blue High School, you see it having one grade. But it took three years for them to have their first graduating class and to become a full-fledged high school. That's what you have in the book of Acts. It is very developmental. Therefore, be careful of people who try to pack too much theological freight in what's going on without considering the epistles, which really straightforwardly apply the gospel to the problems of the early church. Now, let me quickly move on. We need to read, this is number three, Acts in the Light of the Old Testament. If you took out all of the Old Testament citations in the book of Acts, You'd have a very thin book. The sermons of Acts are filled with uh, the divine authority of Scripture uh, that uh, was present with the people. And the Scriptures were interpreted in the light of the Messiah's coming, demonstrating how his ministry, death, resurrection, and pouring out of the Spirit fulfilled these prophetic writings. So Luke loves the theme of fulfillment, and you will see it a lot, Not only in his gospel, but also in his work of uh, the book of Acts. And so there's a lot of connections between Acts and the Old Testament. And it's more than a matter of words and grammar. We will see Old Testament themes, the spirit, the servant, holy judgment, dispersion, persecution of the prophets brought to new realization through presence of the risen Lord in his church. Number four, we're about to get to five really quickly here. Read Acts in the light of Luke's first volume. Why? Well, the brief prologue draws together Luke's two volumes, summing up the content of the third gospel, even as it turns our vision to what is to Uh, come likewise the gospel closes with jesus's prophetic interpretation of the scriptures a statement that anticipates the drama that unfolds in acts luke 24 46 through 49 thus it stands written the christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance leading to the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations that is gentiles beginning at jerusalem You are witnesses of these things and note this I myself am sending uh, upon you what my father promised but you must stay in the city until you have been clothed from on high with power. And so parallels between Luke's gospel and the book of Acts abound. In the gospel, Jesus receives the Spirit when anointed in his baptism to proclaim good news. In Acts, the church receives the Spirit from the glorified Jesus and declares the wonders of God. In the gospel, Jesus is the servant of Isaiah's servant songs. In Acts, the church is the servant witness also foreseen by Isaiah. In the gospel, Jesus is repeatedly referred to as the Lord. In Acts, his glory and authority as Lord are displayed by his resurrection from the dead. And the centrality of the word, the welcoming of the Gentiles, the arrival of salvation, connect together both of these volumes. And so you could say with pretty great confidence that Acts is volume two of Luke. Finally... Number five, you need to read Acts in the light of his structure. By the way, there will be a test on this. That is why I'm emphasizing each point. Luke is an amazing person, and we'll talk a little bit more about him next week. But he writes Greek very well. When you study Greek in seminary, nobody begins with the book of Acts or Luke or Hebrews. Why? Because it's hard. We usually study 1 John and the Gospel of Mark as we first, first first-year Greek, begin to learn Greek. Luke writes Greek well. He's a physician. He's at home with the written word, and his skill in the use of language is evident. And in order to get his message, that is God's message through him, we have to pay attention to the way in which this craftsman has put the book together. Are there overarching themes to guide us through the flow of incidences that we find in the book of Acts? Is there a framework or structure to help us see how one section leads to the next? We do well to note four structural signals by which Luke points our way through the account. Once these are done, the message will be done. Structural signposts in the narrative of Acts. Acts one eight and Acts nine fifteen are point number one of the four structural signals. It is often observed that Acts one eight contains Jesus' promise of the Spirit and of the apostles' roles as witnesses, provides a preview of the phases of the gospel spread in jerusalem chapters one through seven through judea and samaria chapters eight through twelve and the last parts of the earth chapters 13 through 28 this of course involves geographical expansion but there's more afoot here than miles things begin in jerusalem the city of the great king and the site Of the sanctuary the center of Israel's worship in the Living God but by the close of the book of Acts Paul the bearer of the Lord's Word has reached Rome the city of the Caesars and the center of Gentile world power and so by the close of Acts we see the gospel go as it was laid out before us by Jesus's command Uh, the world The word of God crossed not only spatial distance, but also religious, ethnic, and cultural differences. The word of salvation has come not only to Jewish people within the Holy Land, but also to those dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Moreover, not only to Jews descended from the Father, but also Samaritans, whose religious and ethnic heritage, though related to the Jews, was tainted by intermarriage and pagan syncretism, to Gentile proselytes, to Gentile God-fearers, and even to Gentiles enmeshed in idolatry. So in taking Jesus' word of promise for his outline, Luke highlights the powerful force of God's Spirit, propelling divine vitality, purity, and grace out from the ancient holy place to bring the nations under the redemptive rule of the Lord and his Christ. Sometimes he uses persecution of this church to accomplish that goal. We need to also pay attention to that. Acts nine fifteen is another statement of Jesus's compliments the promise of Acts 1 8 suggesting in more detail the contents of the third major section of this book by the way i'm not sure whether it's luke's genius or the holy spirit's divinity it's probably a combination of both but the way this book puts together is put together stands me causes me to stand in awe of it and to long to sink my teeth in it it has a brilliant uh, as it were pattern about it and so uh, in the third section of the book, the apostolic witness to the end of the earth, that statement describes Saul of Tarsus, the witness whose mission dominates chapters 13 through 28. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is a select vessel belonging to me to carry my name uh, in the presence of both Gentiles and of kings and of Israel's sons. As in uh, Acts one we see here three spheres of witness Gentiles, kings, and sons of Israel. And so this threefold description nicely sums up the targets of Paul's preaching. Luke has recorded it, his primary focus on the Gentiles, chapter 13 through 20, his speeches before kings and rulers, chapters 24 through 26, and his testimonies to his own people, the sons of Israel, chapters 22 to 28. Thus Paul's final words of witness in acts contain a rebuke to Israel reminiscent of Stephen's prophetic testimony against the stiffness of neck and hardness of heart and hearing. And so uh, that is the second interpretive key. uh, Excuse me, the first one. Number two is what are called summary statements. You're going to see these over and over in the book of Acts, and they are simply snapshots or vignettes of the development of the church's life and witness and samples of the Spirit's work, which are joined together by summary statements. These statements, though, perhaps lacking dramatic appeal of the action narratives, are vital to the purpose of of the book of Acts and we will see that as we go through it. They show us the ongoing results of each incident and set the scene for the next event that Luke intends to recount and so they perform these tasks as they perform these tasks the summaries quietly but constantly set the tone for our perception of the Spirit's presence and activity in the church. For example the word of the Lord grew powerfully. Early in Acts, several extended summaries place Pentecost, the healing of the lame man in the temple, the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, in the context of the continuing manifestation of the Spirit's power in the church. And we could go on and on, but let's move now as we see those summary statements playing their role to repeated accounts. And I'm going to hit this really quick. A third feature of Luke's structure is a device borrowed from those who told the uh, story of Israel in the Old Testament. That is, repeating accounts. Why does he repeat accounts? Why is there repetition? I mean, we got it the first time. Why are you saying it over and over? In the Old Testament, the story of how uh, Abraham's servant searched for Isaac's bride is given not once, but twice. Similarly, Luke uses repetition to underscore the importance of three pivotal events. The outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the conversion of Cornelius and his associates, and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so as you read Acts, you will see these accounts being repeated over and over. And we read uh, of of Cornelius's. Because of the uh, relationship between uh, circumcision, sanctuary, calendar, diet. Are all bypassed as God's glory is lavished himself on those who are outside. Uh, Then we read three times the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. First from narrator, then twice from Paul's own tongue. Number four. The prominence of preaching. The word was growing, and so we see a sample of early Christian preaching. At least 30% of the text of Acts consists of apostolic preaching, either in fairly full form or in summary. And so we see preaching as a huge part. Luke has selected speeches strategically, including samples of how the gospel was addressed to various audiences in its expansion from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so, in Jerusalem, we see Peter's speech at Pentecost, the connection between the Spirit's coming and Jesus' exaltation, Peter's speech in Solomon's colonnade, chapter 3, and its follow-up before the Sanhedrin uh, focuses on the power of Jesus' name to bring blessings. Of the last day and Stephen's speech as a prophetic indictment of Israel's rebellion against the deliverers sent by God, leading to the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And so the next phase is, of course, the expansion of the gospel in Judea and Samaria. We have brief, uh, brief summaries of Philip's preaching to Samaritans and an Ethiopian. And as the word continues, uh, we see Cornelius and his friends. Through Peter in chapters 10 and 11 and as the word moves to the ends of the earth we hear it preached in the synagogues of the dispersion among superstitious pagans uh, to elders of the church in deliberation and in farewell. If we are to understand Acts message for the church today we must certainly pay careful attention to the sermons of Acts those divinely given apostolic commentaries on the stirring events that marked the church's entrance into the age of the Spirit's power. And so what we're seeing in the book of Acts is the unfolding of the new covenant being inaugurated, not yet consummated, but being inaugurated. In conclusion, which I know you're glad to get here, I can tell by just looking on the three or four faces here, they're all doing this you know they're really not but i can read mine so you know how it is Um, our study of acts will be enriched as we pay attention to the bridges that link god's mighty work through the apostles with other dimensions of his redeeming work and revealing word to bridge to old testament words of promise and deeds of anticipated deliverance The bridge to the ministry of Jesus recounted in Luke's gospel the bridge to the epistles of Paul and other Apostles through whom the Spirit sets his work in theological context and clear focus and the bridges within the narrative of acts itself which is a signal of turning points in the continuity of the message of salvation in Jesus Christ that bridges chasms and breaks down barriers to extend God's grace to Jew and Gentile alike. And so, uh, for those of you who like to know sources, a lot of that uh, came from two people who have influenced me. Number one is Dennis Johnson, number two is Richard Pratt. And so those are the two major influences on what I just taught or preached to you. Next week, we dive in headfirst into the narrative of Acts. And I hope, like me, this has generated for you interest and enthusiasm in hearing God's Word preached as we encounter and engage with it in the book of Acts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. It is a gift to us. And we pray that as we journey our way through this book, uh, we will again... uh, through the same Spirit who inspired Luke, be illuminated and have our eyes of our hearts open to see the beauty and glory of the truth you have for us here. And we continue to pray for our world as it goes through this pandemic. We pray that you would show yourself to be who you really are, a God of infinite mercy, who especially has uh, a heart of favor toward The broken, the least, the little, the outsiders, the helpless. Uh, We pray that we would be servants of His to minister to those. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.